discussion. Um, without further ado, what I'd like to do is hand over to our host for today's session, um, Phil Black. Phil, over to you. Thanks very much, Phil. I am really happy to have the panelists that we have on uh, this evening. Um, I know some of them and I've worked with them for many years and I've got to know a few of them uh, just recently. Um, I think they've got a, a wealth of experience, um, not just in the world of cloud, but in delivering technology generally. Um, and I think uh, this conversation will be um, a place where I get to learn more about the challenges and the trials and tribulations of, uh, of deploying into clouds and managing complex infrastructure. Um, so in preparation for this though, I kind of went back into my own history and thought about how life has evolved over the last 20 years. And, you know, uh, the last year has probably accelerated digital transformation more than most years. Um, but I was thinking back to actually when the first cloud provider launched their service back in 2006, when AWS launched S3 and EC2, and it was all very new and it, it seemed strange back then. And I was working on a major program actually for changing the UK telecoms network. Um, and I had to, I was actually deploying this really large system, huge transactional volumes. And I think it was the last time I did a, uh, a proper capacity planning exercise on large scale Solaris boxes. It was a Sun 15K, if you remember them. I think we had 72 processes. It could go up to 102 or something like that on the board. It was huge, really big capital expenditure. And we had to buy two of them, one in one data center, one in another data center. And the one in the other data center never even really did anything. It just sat there, um, cost many, many thousands of pounds. And um, I found it quite an interesting process. And uh, even in those days, we were then going, well, what happens if we go beyond the size of this box? What do we do? How do we actually uh, deal with some of the volumes? And it was quite an interesting discussion, but you know, that was 15 years ago and things like that, like th those sorts of conversations have changed massively. So I, I was thinking about being an early customer of EC2 and, and S3, so I, I used AWS back in 2006 and I, was, I couldn't quite see what it was going to do for us. So how narrow-minded and short-sighted I was. Um, uh, and, you know, I remember being dazzled and wowed by Google's structured cabling, very colourful, you know, these amazing data centres that they'd pulled together and how that kind of fueled and powered page rank algorithms and map reduce and all of the good stuff that then, you know, really has changed the way that we do compute. And so I found, I found this process quite an interesting one to just think through the history. And today now, you know, I've spent the last uh, 11, 12 years helping some of the world's largest companies go through transformations, digital and otherwise. Um, I've been with, uh, companies like Walmart who were building their own cloud because they, they could not um, deal with the idea that Amazon uh, had all of the data in their clouds. And so it became a very competitive landscape. And now I've actually started a startup and now cloud gives me so many uh, advantages of how do I get going with very little capital outlay. Um, but 
it's confusing. There's so much opportunity out there and, and there's, that means there's so much complexity. So I was curious to get this conversation going, um, thinking about, well, what benefits were you looking for um, with your clouds choices? Um, and it would be great if you could just give yourself a quick intro so everybody knows who you are uh, and kind of what your history was to this point. But also then just talk about why, what you were hoping to get out of your investment so far. And I wondered, Mark, if you would kick us off um, and kind of talk about some of the things you were looking for from your choice. Sure, Phil. Thanks. Uh, I'm Mark Brinkert. Uh, I've... Uh... I've been involved in uh, in sort of digital transformations now for a number of years. Uh, it's for the past couple of years I have been uh, uh, working as CTO for a company called SHL, and uh, SHL really offers platforms for people answers. And uh, prior to that, I was uh, CTO at the Economist Group and uh, uh, past life also headed up architecture and strategy for the Telegraph Media Group. Um, and through these three companies, actually, I've been involved in a cloud migration of, of the three of them, actually. Um, now, if I start with the latest one at SHL, we were looking at where the very interesting challenge is SHL had just been through an acquisition, and uh, they were looking at divesting from their previous, uh, from our previous owners and building uh, the infrastructure and platforms to look to the future, yeah? To look to scaling and changing and growing uh, the organization. So our challenges were around, we had a set time frame whereby we wanted to get going, you know, because we had to divest. We also wanted to put in place a, a, a capability that helps us to really revolutionize the time to market. We wanted to do changes to our products and platform really quickly and leverage some of uh, the innovations you get through the cloud. We also were looking at global scale and uh, being able to work in different markets. And we were looking at also accelerating that time to innovation, yeah? It's like being able to leverage capabilities. Now, in, in, in SHL, we looked at, uh, at a number of different providers out there. We ended up uh, choosing uh, AWS as our cloud provider. And there were a number of reasons which we can touch on uh, later, why AWS and not Azure or not Google? Because all of them were, all of them were in the middle. And uh, uh, the the time, the time for us to go from sort of the idea to actually say hit go, let's start the project to execute, being live uh, across uh, three different uh, global regions, that was quite quick, about six months, for a platform made up of around uh, 150 different applications. And so there were a lot of lessons learned out of that, but uh, it, 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 it was really quite exciting. 
Very good. And, and it's quite interesting there, Mark, because you say time to market, time to innovation and global scale. Uh, cost wasn't um, one of the uh, points that you made from a from a benefits perspective. And it is still something I often hear, which is to try and get costs under control, total cost of ownership and all of those good things. Um, so so interesting set of benefits you were looking for. I wonder, Sarah, if you know, you could give a little bit of your background and maybe how you thought about some of the choices you've made in your career. Yeah, so hi, Sarah Milton. Um, I, um, I'll probably go back to, I think the first time I touched on cloud type things was back at BAA when we did the airports and I was heading up their technology group. Um, and we probably moved slightly more to cloud concepts um, under that typical advertising and banner of the martini option of any time, any place, anywhere and that concept of getting access to your technology. So um, that's from BAA. I went on from there to do some consulting um, across cloud and many other um, different industries with HP. Um, and then I ended up joining uh, P&O Ferries. And I think that's where I probably came across my biggest challenges um, around achieving benefits from a cloud perspective. <coughs> Um, because I didn't have fixed offices or just fixed offices. I had um, ports offices, but then I had the concepts of ships, which have terrible connectivity. So, you know, we were trying to move towards the cloud um, for all of the same reasons uh, that I think that um, Mark touched on there around that agility, time to market, pace um, and reach, bearing in mind that we're a, um, we were part of a global logistics organisation under the Dubai World, DP World arrangement. And all of those things applied, but then we stuck them on a bit of water with a terrible bit of string um, and then said, let's go to the cloud and see how that works. So I think we had um, some real challenges with that arrangement. But I think... Um, that came to fruition in its real sense, I think, as we hit the beginning of this year um, with COVID um, and actually the, the whole change in people's working practices, you know, the, the ships weren't so much of an issue anymore. It was about that everybody was distributed everywhere. So coming back to that anytime, any place, anywhere and that concept of being able to stand up, tear down time to market. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and like uh, in prep, the, the the term COVID came up a lot about, you know, kind of how it's just changed everything in terms of thought processes around the cloud and what it can what, what it can do for you. I wonder, Russ, if you can, um, you know, you've worked across lots of different types of organizations. Um, can you add anything to the, the benefits some of your clients were looking for? Yeah, sure. I mean, d definitely um, what the guys have said so far resonates. Um, I think um, when I cast my mind back to Heathrow, um, the it's an interesting business because it's it's uh, obviously it's a single site. But um, what you really appreciate, Heathrow, is the scale of kind of partners and, and the complexity of, of running an airport. Um, and there's a lot of information sharing that goes on. Um, and I think our early forays into um, into cloud were really around how, how do we um, how do we get this data accessible? How do we provide this data to to partners? So we developed a bit of a, a an information strategy that was based around um, standing up a, a data warehouse, normalizing some data, and then standing up a bunch of services in front of it. Um, I think probably what we did is what everyone does is we, we kind of try to run before we could walk really. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we ended up building in, uh, in cloud, it was um, pretty much all in Azure, by the way. 
um, mostly because we had an enterprise agreement. We we just jumped into Office 365. There were a lot of synergies to have to, to be had there, so we decided to build out in Azure. Um, but yeah, we, we we jumped in, and of course, we didn't really have the uh, the IT organisation. Um, you know, the skills, the um, the ways of working, the governance in place. Um, uh, and that led to the usual problems of, of um, you know, escalating costs and, um, yeah, uh, things things being deployed by partners because uh, we were pretty much all of this stuff was being built by uh, partners um, that was then really difficult to understand. It wasn't it wasn't a, it kind of deployed against any kind of patterns or anything like that. So, so um, that was interesting. I think we then. T- took a step back um we, there were a handful of us i think that were really lobbying for um let's let's get ourselves set up properly from an organization point of view to be able to manage this stuff um and we we then went into a a proper kind of development of a cloud strategy right so so the benefits you were looking for up front were not necessarily immediately found you actually had to take a step back and really get it under control um, yeah, and maybe we'll touch upon like the governance execution and and all of those sorts of things in a bit. I think mm. that uh, I think that's quite interesting. And and so the whole idea of anytime, any place, anywhere. I like you know I like the uh, the strap line. Um, I think Arta, you actually have quite an interesting uh, story that you were sharing with me, um, trying to bring healthcare to anybody on Earth. And uh, do you want to just give a little bit of your background and a little bit of a um um insight into kind of what you were hoping yes. for from the cloud which is quite different to a heathrow single site problem this is now yes really any place anytime anywhere type yeah yeah it's the problem is slightly different so i'm arthur tega i'm the head of platform architecture at babylon health it's a healthcare startup which now um has a mission to provide accessible and affordable healthcare anywhere in the world. And the interesting part is there to make it accessible and affordable. And the tricky part is anywhere in the world. And with that comes a lot of regulation because if you think about healthcare, there's a lot of regulators. We are working with the NHS. We provide GP at hand in UK, but we are operating in, in all different other countries, and the regulations come with with the caveat that we are, for example, not allowed to store the data or not even process the data outside of the country. And that gives us a complete different challenge because that means that um, we have to run our full architecture in that particular country. And you don't want to build up data centers all over the world. So, and we're using digital to support healthcare, to enable us to provide healthcare to everyone. And the smartphones and digital are the way we are making it affordable. And that means we need to run our architecture in the different countries and not all cloud providers are in all countries. And I'll give you an example. So we are, for example, sitting in Rwanda, neither AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, or Alibaba is sitting in Rwanda. We have to run that uh, platform 
on a data center run by the government, for example. We are in areas where um, we, we, we basically have a high regulated area where we need to figure out basically which cloud provider to use. So the whole part of cloud just makes it possible to create this kind of mission and, and to be able to provide healthcare in an accessible way worldwide. Yeah, it's very interesting. And when you were explaining the Rwanda story to me the other day, you actually also said that even generic technologies like Kubernetes, for instance, was not even deployable into uh, into that government data center. So that must make life very hard. And I, I'd love for you to go into a bit more detail around that um, as we get into kind of how you yes. use your tech stack and, and, and what are the implications. But I, I found it fascinating. So um, just the last person to introduce then. So Alex, um, uh, what it would be really interesting for you to add to this is I know, again, you've worked with lots of different types of clients and you were very much at pains to tell me, but you know, Phil, it depends. Proper yeah. classic <laughs> consultant answer, which I get. And um, but I'd love you for you to kind of bring in. Okay, well, what does it depend on, and what were your clients looking for, and why were they looking for the benefits that they were looking for? If you could add a little bit of color to that, that would be very helpful. Absolutely. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. And I was going to mute myself back because you just said what I was going to say. It depends. <laughs> but in general, we were working with different types of clients, very huge ones, startups, uh, small and medium business, ISVs. And usually at first, clients are looking not just for a cost reduction, but ROI, because it's not just total cost of ownership, but actually people, the companies start to spend more as time goes on, because they suddenly understand that things can be provisioned within uh, minutes or hours, and this resource sprawl, huge one that we'd have to then uh, think about proper governance and other mechanisms. So usually it's ROI, how much a value we get out of a dollar spent for the infrastructure, rather than uh, we have spent on prem infrastructure and it's a, it's it's really above and uh, it's great second is agility which actually ties to the pricing question to the ROI question is how fast are we able to deliver things to the market how fast are we able to react as uh, market changes because it changes a lot especially due throughout the latest years especially in 2020 we all saw that and the flexibility and ability to adapt fast and create value for end users fast and deliver that value to the market in cloud, it's way above than we can imagine in uh, on-prem cloud, like uh, in private cloud. But again, private cloud technologies are catching up as well. So we now have hybrid clouds that allow us to unite, combine uh, multiple clouds public and private, so it's not no longer this problem, but cloud initially provided this flexibility and speed and uh, like ability to uh, react to the market as well as ability to uh, change, uh, research, find a better new models, adopt the cloud native approach, adopt different agile techniques, how we deploy, how we establish CI/CD process, how we automate all that, and that also what our customers usually find very beneficial in the cloud. 
as well, uh, cloud provides the geographical reach. As yeah, we all spoke about that. We can serve content for the customers all over the world, and it gets the best latency possible because we cannot build all those data centers all, all, all over the world. And it, which is actually connected to this is that uh, usually cloud, if they have a certain data center, they are they try to be compliant with the regulation of that particular country or region. So most of the clouds, they are compliant with most of the standards. If we are building our data center or our services, we're not quite sure if it is, for example, GDPR compliant or uh, SOX or uh, PCI DSS, but most of the cloud ma uh, managed services, they, they have this compliance embedded in them. So we don't have to take care about that. Well, at least to some extent, because still data remaining our uh, services layer built on top of that is remaining, but we kind of have less pain. Um, so we're able to utilize that. And, and of course, ability to, now as time goes on, this, I, I see this as a new wave, new evolutional step of uh, this flexibility when we can combine a hybrid cloud setup where we can utilize both out of both worlds and out of all clouds we have. And yeah. that's actually providing a whole new set of opportunities. We'll be talking about that, I'm sure. So that's that's probably what I can okay. tell. That's <laughs> really, really helpful addition. And I think you know, as we move into this next part now to talk about how you make the choice. I mean, yeah. one thing that, um, one thing's clear now is most people have adopted something in the cloud, whether it's a SaaS platform, whether it's Office 365, whether it's something, you know, um, much more, like lifted and shifted all of their legacy systems, whatever it happens to be, we are definitely in a, in a world now where the question is not if cloud, it's what cloud serves what thing best. And how do I manage the complexity of lots of clouds seems to be still something that is uh, being wrestled with. But one other benefit area as we transition into that topic, um, I'd like to come back to you, Russ, just for a second, because um, you had you have a passion around sustainability um, like nobody else I've met so far on, on this topic. And um, you were talking about actually some of the benefits of power consumption. And, and, and would you just expand a little bit about that in terms of the benefits yeah. that you're looking for, but then start talking about, well, how do you then choose what cloud provider best serves your needs? Yeah, I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you came back to me on that one. I wanted to. I wanted to chip in because, um, yeah, I mean, w w um, what I've I've recently uh, started a new venture, which is um, the Green Future Technology Consulting, and the idea of that is to focus um, increasingly on uh, sustainability in IT, um, and I'm looking right across the board at people, process, and and technology, and. Um, Obviously, cloud is um, is an interesting story around cloud uh, in terms of, as you say, um, particularly energy usage. So if you think about a typical on-premise deployment, um, I know there's plenty of data centers knocking about still that are in, in the depths of office buildings. Um, they're not purpose-built. Um, I don't know if, if um, people are familiar with uh, PUE. The, that's basically a, a measure of how efficient a data center is. Um, I think the average um, outside of cloud is about 1.8, which basically means that 
um, you're using an additional 80% energy in order to cool um, and manage the environment. Um, and I've worked um, certainly at Heathrow, we were estimating our PUE at some, something around 2.2, which means we were actually consuming more energy to cool the data center than we were at the energy that the actual servers and, and infrastructure in the data center was consuming. So um, what you have with the hyperscale providers, and, and this is true of all of them really, um, is they have um, absolutely massive uh, state-of-the-art purpose-built data centers um, and especially the, the the more recent ones the ones that have been built over the last five to ten years um, they've, they're built with sustainability in mind from day one in terms of the materials that are chosen in terms of the efficiency I know each of the major providers you know use all of their kind of you know AI to absolutely optimize um, the, the energy usage. And they achieve typically a PUE of around 1.125. So much, much more energy efficient. So that's, that's the kind of number one thing. Um, the number two thing is in the process of moving to the cloud, um, there's a real opportunity to optimize and streamline what you have. So if you're looking at the, in the infrastructure space, typically, uh, an on-premise environment might reach a utilization level of around 15% at the most. And that's, I think, partly to do with the way that we invest in infrastructure. The money's available once, so we put a lot of extra capacity in there um, and change processes are slow. So yeah, basically a lot of things lead into, we'll, we'll, put, we'll just bake in a lot of extra capacity. When you move to the cloud, if you just pick, lift and shift what you've got, that's going to cost you an absolute fortune. So you kind of have to, just from a financial point of view, optimize what you have. So in the, in the couple of sort of studies that I've done for a couple of clients, um, I, I've estimated that um, you, could, you can save about 50% um, energy usage from a combination of moving to a more efficient data center, but also optimizing what you, know, what you have deployed, which is a great story. It's, um, and I think it will become, sustainability will become something that more and more organizations will prioritize by virtue of the, you know, it's becoming um, uh, you know, a very um, prominent business strategy these days. Yeah, well, I imagine as companies are coming out and saying there'll be zero, you know, net zero emissions by, you know, whatever date they're picking mm. out, that actually compute cost and cooling and, and mm. storage and all of that stuff is going to play massively into it. So the next wave of choices around technology is going to have to take those things into consideration. And, you know, while we've got the Microsoft's sinking containers to the bottom of the sea yeah. for uh, for better cooling efficiency and things like that we're going to see other innovations in that space um and, and mark, mark you uh, you mentioned that you had choices around aws azure and uh, and google um d does cooling and efficiency ever play into your mind uh, and if not what does what plays into your mind why do you make the choices you make i think I think you know it, it, it's really interesting what uh, Russian was uh, was was talking about in in, in the consideration. Cost consideration is always is always really critical. Obviously, one of the things is that you're moving from a capital investment to a, an operational spend uh, when you're moving from you know going and building a a, a data center and 
for to move into the cloud. I think you know when I look at when I look at for for, for us we we use a variety of sort of clouds. You know we uh, use on the six five. We have Azure for uh, some of our AI technologies. We use GCP for some of our other AI technologies, depending on what you want to use. We use AWS to host our platforms. We use AWS also for workspaces to offer workspaces to uh, our employees to work in a more secure nature. Actually, it was really, really interesting that when the pandemic hit and uh, and uh, when we started to have to lock down, and then uh, I still had people joining the organization in different areas of the world. You know, the whole supply chain was was actually broken. So you, you, I couldn't get, I couldn't physically get a laptop, for example, to somebody in a rural uh, rural parts of India, for example. Just supply chain was totally broken for a number of months. And the way we approach that is, uh, we actually we we offered them uh, a secure AWS workspace for them to work to be able to work on our systems. Yeah, so like that. Uh, they could use their own device. I, I, I digress. So in terms of the choices, it's really depending on uh, on on what you what what you want to do. For for us, when we are looking at we we looked at, for example, we looked at Azure, we looked at Google Cloud, we looked at Amazon for our for 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 our core platform, and we chose Amazon at that point in time because in our assessment we felt that Amazon was giving us the best mixture of, uh, you know, um, innovation and the roadmap availability of cloud native services and the right mixture for us to be able to accelerate. Not that Azure didn't, but at that point in time, Amazon was doing it more for us. Now, actually this year, I'm looking more at the multi-cloud strategy because less so and less so than Arthur, for example, I also have, I also offer my services in, 23 different markets and you know data data residency and data sovereignty around certain markets is becoming more more and more prevalent and sometimes you just don't have you know it's it's like you know uh, Amazon Web Services cloud instance is not available in, uh, in in for example Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates or you know Russia. So, like you know, just like you have to, you have to think, uh, you have to think a bit differently than in, in terms of. So, how do I offer my core platform offering that I am not creating a specific version for that market? That means then that I am forking my platform, you know, uh, uh, and so different considerations there come into play to. What is going to be your sort of core offering towards what's going to be your sort of uh, uh, the ability to meet different demands? Yeah, yeah. I was I was chatting to um, a CIO uh, last week, and he basically said he was having a global offering, which would be on you know one of the uh, major providers, and send something specific for China. Uh, obviously, China uh-huh. is very is uh-huh. very different, and they have Alibaba and, and and all of those good things. So, like he definitely had that challenge. Uh, so, 
the idea of a global platform is an amazing one, um, but hard to do when you have lots of different rules in, in and, all the different geos. I think, I think that is a, a really, a really interesting pattern because actually the way, the way we build platforms now and actually the la different layers of abstraction that we can build within our platforms means that we can start to port much more across yeah. you know, the, the actual infrastructure portion. Yeah. And that's that's really that's really the the shift from like instead of looking at it cloud native, which you know after a few years ago, you know, we, we were we were really talking cloud native really. Mm -hmm. And cloud agnostic was something that the cool guys were doing, but we yeah. weren't really ready to invest there. Now it's kind of, hey, the cool, it's not only the cool guys that have to do it, it's pretty much you have to start thinking about cloud agnostic if you want to really, really go uh, on a global footprint and actually meet these different demands. Well, I think you, you mentioned something there, cloud agnostic, and I'd love to just bring Arta back in because <laughs> we had quite a big discussion about cloud agnosticism. Uh, the other day, and I know there's something that you guys at Babylon Health have been aiming for, but do you want to just talk to us about your choices and actually some of the challenges behind those choices? Yes, I would like to go back to Russ first about sustainability, okay. and that's what cloud allows as well, because there's a service on top. So if you think about digital health, a lot of our doctors work from home through VPN, people don't have to travel to their GP to go to the doctor because they can use their smartphone. The amount of CO2 that you are saving through these services on top of the cloud gives you another layer of sustainability. And if you think about areas where we are sitting, like in Canada, where in Alberta you have a two-hour drive to the next doctor, it's basically not basically a sustainability and a lifesaver and very often basically in these kind of cases. And that is a good point where well, how do we do the choices and if you look into the different countries where we are the the choices very often is um what are the players on the market and are they available is there a choice even and most of the times aws due to being the like the oldest player on the market it's just the one that is in the most regions but very often we have situations like Switzerland where Google is available, but not Amazon. And this kind of things are basically go into that decision. So very often if AWS is available, we go for AWS. And, and then the other platform basically we are going. As part of um, being cloud agnostic, it was, was one of the early decisions that Babylon did even before I joined and they went for Kubernetes. But I think at that time, Kubernetes had a lot of promises, but was not completely feature complete, or there were several variations of achieving things. And, um, and it only reached to a particular amount of, of agnostic approach, because if you think about what it actually gives you, is a lot of the areas where you can run your containers it gives you a particular obstruction to the databases, but then it's not all of that. You want to use more of the cloud providers that they offer 
you start for blob storage. So you mentioned S3 in the introduction. Google has uh, their cloud um, uh, storage as as compatibility mode to S3, for example, on Azure, their blob storage is not compatible to S3. That means you need to have a translation layer on top. This all adds complexity on top. The other part is identity and authorization management. If you're using something as AWS, what, how do you do transfer this kind of things to the others? And then having an abstraction layer like Kubernetes on top of the cloud provider adds additional administrative work. You, we have to spend time to keep all the Kubernetes clusters up to date. And if you run in dozens of countries, that means a team is basically full time there to make sure that all the Kubernetes clusters run on the latest version yeah. and all the applications that you are running on top of that. And you still don't make best use of all the other serverless functionality that the cloud provides. Yeah. And it creates another dilemma as well for the developers because you have your applications running uh, it on abstraction of the data storage. And then you have another layer on top where you have like the distribution network like CloudFront. That means it leaves developers in a particular area where they can innovate while it matters where you store the data. It matters if you go for Aurora instead of the regular RDS Postgres. It makes a difference if you can run a Lambda at Edge instead of running your own service. Yeah. So it's not only the abstraction anything, it's still a little bit to go for full cloud agnostic approaches. Yeah. So when we were chatting about this, it really reminded me of the same debate that we're having with mobile technology. You know, is it native? Is it cross platform? Like, are you going to get the most out of the hardware that you have available? Or do you have to make choices where you're doing the lowest common denominator and, 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 and some of those? And I think they're really interesting criteria to go into decision making. Um, so, Sarah, just coming back to you for a, for a moment, as you're thinking about ships and, you know, uh, being able to get the right data to the right place at the right time um, and and having to deal with storms and waves and all of those sorts of good things. Are there any other uh, uh, kind of criteria that have, you know, that you had to think about back in P&O, but actually maybe more how you thinking about it now after those experiences of, uh, of, of P&O? Yeah, I just do want to touch back because I think the whole um, the data sovereignty and that whole um, legal and compliance and regulatory uh, considerations, which I think is also going to play an interesting part at the end of this fiscal year as well, this calendar year, when we come out of the EU from a UK perspective, all do play a part around what your selections are going to be because it is very much dictated by what's available in the geography where you can comply with those legal requirements. But um, going back to the ships, yeah, definitely. I think one of the areas that um, I had to work on in that perspective was also around the availability. You know, um, availability, business continuity isn't always just a disaster. You know, in ships, it was our everyday uh, life because we weren't always connected. So we had to build and, and that dictated some of our choices because when you've got real pure cloud players having a conversation with them that says 
you know, there's going to be a time when they're going to have no connectivity, you know, and everybody's got connectivity at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of need now. Um, <laughs> they just doesn't, doesn't land with them as a concept in understanding that I want to be in the cloud, but I'm also going to have to work without being connected. Um, and so that very much dictated some of the partners that we could talk to. Um, but it, it is the variety of what you want to be doing and then you pick who you do it with. And I, I think that's why it drives us to have such a multi-cloud and varied environment because it very much is horses for courses. You know, we were having conversations with Microsoft about ships and those, those um, corporate type services because they could get it. And I think um, also because they were more of a, <clears throat> a historical legacy um, pre-cloud organization but then when we went to look for um, collecting analytics and properly analyzing our data you know we were having conversations at, at quite an extreme uh, level with Google about some of the things that we could do about the telemetry the environmental data you know how we were going to drive the di digital ship strategy and, and you don't want to do that like you say on a hundred CPU machines sitting on a vessel in the middle of salty water that goes up and down and is an awful environment to put any equipment on so you know how do you do that so that those are the things that drive you to make you know the choices that you have to make it's such an extreme example i do imagine like the people trying to get to mars are plotting out similar strategies and thinking now how are we going to do this so i it, it is uh, it is very extreme uh, for sure um alex just coming uh, coming back to you now so like once upon a time, you ask someone what their cloud choice was, the answer was AWS, right? Because they were the first to market. They were the, yeah. um, they, they are still the, the ones offering, probably yeah. with the most uh, capability. Or the answer was Azure because everyone had already bought into Microsoft, Microsoft and actually had Office account. 365, blah, blah, blah. But in the last couple Thank of years, you. I'd say Google has really started to evolve. And we do have a question um, from one of the uh, audience members about Oracle. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to Oracle in a bit. Um, and I'll ask all of you about uh, Oracle and, and some of the other cloud providers coming. But Google has been the player uh, that has really invested and yep. gone hard over the last couple of years. And I know you have a lot of experience in, in the Google Cloud and how it compares and contrasts. So... Like, what are your uh, criteria when you're advising a client? How do you think about um, that advice, and what would you, what would you say to a client? Yes, Phil, uh, I'd like to uh, advise address a few things. Actually, a few interesting cases that I heard. First of all, Russ, uh, I, I guess Google they have this uh, commitment to sustainability, and they have this uh, sustainability program, pretty extensive, and it's really interesting. You probably might want to check it out. For Mark, uh, for Saudi Arabia, actually Oracle is working because we have a customer of ours that we, we were using uh, AWS and GCP for, uh, it's a huge logistical company and we're building uh, a, a fleet management system and a mobility program application. And we find out uh, that we actually cannot run it in Saudi Arabia. We, there's the only way to run it on Oracle. <laughs> because of the compliance regulation, because actually it's only a judge who can decide if you are compliant with the regulation. And it just, it, it's only working for Oracle as I uh, feel, I guess he made a joke that uh, judge is driving a car with- Yeah, Oracle sponsored standard. by Oracle. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just they're, they're, they're the one uh, cloud that actually works in Saudi Arabia. And Arthur and both Mark, you, 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 you said an interesting thing that Actually, yes, it's a portable workload, uh, but it, it, 
it's actually uh, going towards the serverless even more right now and to service mesh model rather than portable workload. We have Istio, Envoy, Anthos, basically a combination, for example, Forpost or something else that has a service mesh across all the clouds and allows us to communicate as it was one cloud. Uh, and actually all clouds, they have this migration appliance where you can easily migrate from one to another from on-prem to cloud. And it's actually, uh, I guess all clouds are good in this, but in particular, it's and there's a new evolutional model of this service mesh that unites the on-prem, uh, private public cloud, multiple private clouds in one interface enabling to like use all of them as it was one, as well as uh, my, uh, serverless uh, services that encapsulate adds another logical layer, uh, Kubernetes engine, uh, Elastic Kubernetes service, uh, Kubernetes service in Azure. So it's, it's, it's evolving and it's actually solving those problems that we used to have like uh, when we were only porting uh, and, uh, workload uh, and make it work in uh, any environment. And in terms of the combination of the cloud, yes, you, you totally agree with you that it was, and probably still is AWS because they have the great offering around compute. They have great offering around databases, both relational, non-relational. They have great offering around IoT, awesome uh, offerings around governance and uh, and security, and they have the, the widest technology stack. The SDKs are beautiful, like many SDKs, and marketplaces, templates that you can just uh, deploy within a minutes or hours and, and start using pretty heavy, extensive solutions for industrial automation, IoT, even big data. Uh, AIML is very good. So yeah, they, they have very strong offering. And, but mostly it's a classical, right? Uh, compute databases that's, that's, and governance. So that's classical enterprise solution. In terms of Azure, obviously, yes, they are the second uh, behind the leader AWS. And they also have very strong offering. And especially if you're working with Microsoft stack, if you, most of us, we're using AD, uh, Active Directory, and most of clouds, they uh, like suggesting their ways to integrate with AD, but obviously, there's native integration in Azure, as well as everything that is about Microsoft stack. So they are leaders in this, and also they're leaders in the developer and DevOps tools, operation automation, automated pipelines, uh, their tools, uh, Azure DevOps, family of the tools. It's, 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 it's really great. In terms of uh, GCPS, uh, they made a huge progress uh, for the last couple of years in areas of serverless. They have a uh, application engine, they have uh, cloud functions, and uh, they also uh, made a great offering in the big data, AIML, because they have this volume, huge volumes of data, and they know how to use it. And they, they have a great offering around machine learning, predefined pre models, text to speech, uh, speech-to-text, uh, auto-ML. And um, they also, I'd say, they are very interesting in API management and networking because they have their own network, first of all, and they have APG, 
they're, they're actually selling as a separate tool, but it's it's it was uh, designed and developed by Google, and still some of the services that uh, APG Engine provides is a part of uh, offering of like APG Sense, for example, I guess uh, offering of the Google Cloud platform, and it, it it's it's fantastic. It's a new way of managing APIs. You can manage versioning, you can manage, manage policies, you can prevent DDoS attacks, you can even create a whole portal for the developers automatically uh, using that tool. So it's, it's, it's great as well as networking and Google advantage is that it's global. Yeah, it is really global. There's no problem for me to run manage instance group across two, uh, two, two regions, just not availability zones, but also two regions, load balance traffic between them. There's not nothing. But it, it's, it's quite simple. So that's, I guess our main advantage is, but, to your point, and probably everybody were more or less talking about the same, it's not about which cloud to choose, rather which combination of cloud to choose today. And yeah. mm -hmm. that combination is driven by a combination of managed services that you'd like to use. And we spoke about that uh, some time ago, and I don't know if we have time to dive deeper into that, but it all starts, as we consultants like to talk about, it all starts from the value stream, you analyze your value stream, you decompose it to the steps, you understand, you, you create a user journey mapping where you understand what are the steps that user takes and what drives value to the user on each step and what are the opportunities to automate, optimize yeah. that technology but, can bring in into each step. Yeah, go ahead. I think, I think we'll get onto the execution side in a moment. And I think, yeah. you know, I know, I know this is some, uh, an area that you'd like to dig into and actually uh, in the white paper to follow this, um, there'll be some information about how do you go about making those yeah. choices and get into an executable strategy. Um, there have been some questions coming in and uh, th this is an opportune moment. I'm just gonna try and weave some of them in to the right places as I know the conversation's going to evolve. Uh, but Vipul Tana asked about Oracle in particular. So you mentioned there was a, um, yeah. a benefit of Saudi Arabia. It's the only one available. But um, his question really was, you know, why is Oracle not necessarily thought of in the same way as the other hyperscale uh, providers? Just curious on any of your thoughts there. Uh, uh, at the... Oracle is, the problem is, it's, it's probably the same problem that we were facing some time ago with Google Cloud, uh, is that we have very few people who understand Oracle because I had problems, like what I'm doing, I'm managing portfolios projects for different yeah. clients and solutions for them. So I was struggling to find for that particular customer, I was struggling to find a proper Oracle uh, DevOps to set up Oracle Cloud and port migrate the applications and data to the Oracle Cloud because there are very few who properly understand the cloud. So that's yeah. the first problem that Oracle is facing right now. Uh, it is different. It has a bit more limitations and a bit slower uh, support. What what we faced is that we were trying to rise the limit, change the limit in the message queue, in particular the, 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 in um, in messaging uh, problem, and it was probably not quite reasonable limitation because it, all the clouds they're not limiting the amount of topics you can publish, but Oracle limits that amount to one, and then you have to approach the support to increase that number. So it was like a bit. It didn't feel right at that point of time, but we ultimately resolved that issue and it worked out. So it pretty much has everything in terms of the offering, but the problem is first 
some limitations potentially they might um, uh, have in certain services second the people that's probably yeah. the i mean my, my view is um you know lots of the oracle databases and things like that that you know became were available on other platforms so uh, that was my immediate reaction uh, i was curious mark do you have a view have you looked at oracle in any way uh, we did actually. We, we, did, we did for Saudi Arabia. Actually, it was one of okay. the uh, one of the items. Um, it's it's kind of from from my perspective. I, I was looking, I was looking more at portability across multiple regions. Right. So you, 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 you know, it, and and when we, when we looked when we looked at it, it's sort of there are uh, there are some limitations with Oracle, which I I, I think I'll extend. Can go can go in in a lot of detail on. So we we eventually sort of like uh, uh, discounted it. Uh, but like with everything, it depends. It really depends on what you're trying to achieve. And Oracle might be the answer for for you know within the context of what you're trying to enable for the particular business. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, otherwise, if there was one answer yeah. for this, you know, otherwise there would be one market leader for it, and everybody would be going for them. You know, I, I mean, I think they're just late to the table. Is the is the really is the is the easiest way to say it? You know, there was a report out last year which said something along the lines of how many of the Oracle databases were being replaced by databases yeah. provided by Amazon now. Yeah. So, like their bread and butter. Yeah. You know, uh, business model had been eroded by other cloud players, and I think that it's, it's very interesting. It's like you know, you look at the announcement uh, uh, from reInvent around Babelfish uh, on, on on Amazon, and you know, it's 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 like Microsoft with SQL Server had a bit of the hooks in you, with you know having to do it to if, if you're using certain type of procedures, it just had to go enterprise. Amazon is going into there, you know, and uh, you have you 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 have other uh, other providers, you know, IBM Cloud, which doesn't seem to, you know, it it it's it's kind of IBM are really pushing it, but uh, it's not really sticking as uh, much. Uh, 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 the the solution we've seen VMware, you know, VMware will go into into more of a of a Kubernetes type uh, offering. Uh, from what they were previously, so it's 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 sort of at that stage, kind of reinvent yourself, or you're kind of uh, you're kind of going to be consumed, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so so uh, I don't know if this one's for you, Mark, but um, well, one Mr. Jura Gill, don't know if you know him, uh, was asking um, the ROI KPI in moving from physical to cloud is becoming mature. But how would the panel demonstrate the ROI in moving to containers serverless yeah. to a board? I think I think probably I'll let the other part. Let, uh, everyone else, because you that, uh, for those that don't know, Jura is actually uh, someone that Mark knows very well and works with on a day to day basis. So he clearly hasn't answered this question well enough. So um, <laughs> Sarah, would you want to have a do you want to have a go at um, helping helping Mark out? I, I, I suppose, to be honest with you, I, I wouldn't talk to a board about containerless and, and those elements. It's not, you're going to have lost them by the time you've got to the second word. 
um, if I'm honest about it. And this comes back to what I think Alex was referring to earlier, which is actually you need to talk about those things that make a difference to your business. What What is it going to contribute to your business's value chain? You know, what's the value in doing it this way over doing it the other ways? And that's the same for any technology coming along. You know, we can get very tied up in being interested and geeky in our tech, yeah, and it's lovely. But at the end of the day, all of us are doing jobs for organizations that this generally isn't uh, actually interesting. I'm in NTT at the moment, and that is generally their thing about what they do. But um, actually, it's not what their core business is. You know, the intention of technology behind all of these things is to service their customer, their business. And I think that that's how you contextualize it for your board, which is actually what is it going to do about your customer connection, your customer relation, your speed to market, your opportunity to penetrate a market early with a new idea and quick and stand it up how can you get ahead of the competition and what's the speed of that agility and that ability to get ahead from a business context not about the container would be my advice so so, you know and i think microservices architectures all the rage in uh in in the tech world um but it's actually what does that do for the business agility and evolution of digital business models over time i wonder like do you have much to add in on, on that question arta Yes, I have. Um, I think the part that's quite interesting is elasticity. So how much can you cut down the spend that you have and how much can you go up quickly for a peak and then go back in? And that was an interesting part when I was working with Mark at The Economist because the content platform that we built was completely serverless and we could cut down the costs quite dramatically to the point where only when a journalist has saved or updated the article, something was triggered. But at the other time, there was no microservice running that was spending money. There was no EC2 instance running. And only during the time on a Thursday evening when The Economist was published, that's when basically this spend was going up, but afterwards it was going down while keeping high resilience. So this model works quite nicely to have elasticity. And this is a complete new way of looking at costs when you come from a data center where you basically have like a fixed rate of, of costs. And it, it changed the whole way of dealing with that. That means while you don't have anyone using it, your costs go almost down to zero. And it's a huge change, especially now with the latest announcements where Lambda's have to be can be paid by millisecond, not hundred millisecond. That means even the code that you're putting in with it has a huge impact. How how expensive it is, and it changes completely the way people are writing code. and And my mantra is usually less codes are less bucks. And it means if you're looking at lambda functions, they're all event driven architectures. You usually try to cut it down the code to just pure business logic. But this model, for example doesn't work easily if it's not transferable to countries like Saudi Arabia, where you have like Oracle or, or an AWS outpost, where you don't have all the offerings. Or if you go to Rwanda, where you don't have serverless, and you have to build up everything yourself, including message queues, and you have to maintain them. It's a yeah. huge pain to do that if you want to do that. And it doesn't give you any of the elasticity in these countries. Yeah, I think, you know, just building on top of that uh, a little bit, Arta, um, you know, 30 years ago, and we are still uh, 
dependent on some of these systems and mainframes that were built that long ago. Um, it, they were monoliths. Uh, and the microservices architecture is obviously breaking it up. It brings a whole different set of complexities and that maybe for a different Technofresh uh, session. But the idea that you can actually evolve one part of your architecture independently to the other parts of the architecture is something that could be quite appealing for agility and digital business models more broadly. Uh, and that, that's more part of the benefit of actually how does cloud and the services enable these microservices architecture, which can enable far more business agility and uh, independent business models that can then kind of grow into platform-based business models, which are, are, are like most industries are trying to figure out how that all hangs together. So I think I think there is a story to tell about how that specific technology might actually translate into a business benefit that uh, a board will uh, will subscribe to. Um, and just on top of that, so we had another question uh, from Gary Sage, uh, and it's been a while since. Um, uh, he wrote that, so apologies it's taken us so long, Gary, to get to it. But you mentioned that in the in 50 years, we've moved from mainframes to server farms to cloud and IoT. Um, and you were mentioning GDPR and data and code sovereignty and all of these good things that we've kind of been touching upon. He's asked, and it's a, it's a big question to ask, and I'm coming to you first, uh, uh, Russ, so I'll keep talking for a second while you get your thoughts around this. Um, but what is business technology going to look like in 2035? That's a long way out. Um, and can you describe it? And I wonder if, um, you know, from a sustainability angle, we might be able to uh, add a little bit of what, the, the, what does the future start looking like um and then we're going to move on to more well what does that mean from an execution standpoint how do we protect ourselves for future technology changes and uh, and if that's okay we're going to tr transition into that topic next so russ over to you what's it going to look like in 2035 right hang on i've got my crystal ball here let me just <laughs> i yeah it's I, I I do spend um, some time kind of um, thinking about this kind of stuff, and if if you look at the um, direction of travel, um, and I think back over my my career, and uh, I think about um, how IT has got um, where it went through a peak of what a peak of complexity, let's say. So from an infrastructure point of view, when I joined IT. I did everything, you know, be it end user compute, networking, um, you know, server support, all that sort of stuff. You, you could because it wasn't too complicated. And then, you know, over the sort of subsequent decades, um, things got more complicated. Um, you know, you, you would need a whole team of different subject matter experts to, you know, to support a, an infrastructure, a set of, a set of technology. Um, now what we see happening is is a an abstraction from that complexity yeah so um if you look at standing up infrastructure um in the cloud you don't need to be an expert in the infrastructure you, you know you, there's a few basics that you need to understand but otherwise it's fairly accessible um such that um you know it's actually more suited to, to coders than it is you know people with a traditional you know technology infrastructure sort of focus so if you fast forward that trend um in another 15 years time i expect that abstraction to continue to the point where you can describe what you want in plain english 
and um, you know via AI or, or, or anything kind of down around that kind of road we'll we'll just translate that into right well we need to stand up these services so we're we're sort of on that route now whether we make that by you know 2035 i've no idea i'm being highly speculative but i think that principle of um gradual abstraction because you know unless you're in the business of technology um managing infrastructure and technology is an overhead it's a you know it's seen as a as a, a cost center that isn't necessarily directly giving value to to the business it's the the things that you sit on top of of that the things that you know generate the data and the information and the insights that's where the value is so um that i think that's where we'll get to where you'll be able to articulate the kind of yeah. thing that you need and it, it yeah. gets orchestrated I mean, 2035, that's uh, the singularity will have happened by then, uh, according to the latest reports. So, so your, your AI, uh, your AI controlled infrastructure um, sounds interesting. Arta, do you have any thoughts on on the future? Um, yes, um, I think the interesting part for me is I'm quite long in this business and uh, in um, that you always find things that are repeating themselves in different ways. And if you think uh, Basically, in the early 2000s, the SETI project where people were borrowing time to projects. If you think about that, basically, what you are running now and how much capacity you have in your pocket, but nobody's using that capacity. Um, I think we are probably going and having a revival of things like the Erlang virtual machine, where it didn't matter where your code is running. And it, the distributed system was making sure that basically it was we're working across this, the whole system. And this whole idea of distributed data, blockchains, distributed platforms, I think that will have a much more bigger revival. And the question is basically, it's not just buying a phone, but the question is basically, can you basically pay off your phone by borrowing your computing time, for example, to someone else in that country, in that locality, and providing services very local. So I think some of these kind of ideas that were early and probably quite sustainable because you make best use of the hardware you created and you make best use of the CPU time at that time. Some of these kind of things probably will come back with a revival of this kind of uh, distributed platforms where everyone is part of that huge service mesh. Yeah, interesting. Mark, do you have anything to add to, to the, the future of the technology stack? I, I, I think I was... I was kind of like reflecting a bit while listening to, to the answers it's because it's it's really interesting, isn't it? Is if we look at the last 10 years, um, huge, huge leaps forward with, you know, like we said in the beginning, you know, 2006, starting, you know, uh, cloud offerings, multi-cloud offerings. Then you, you, you look at also the, the, the global context, you know, pandemic hitting this year, you know, major, major global event, uh, major shifts and uh, uh, shifts in regulations happening in, in, in the EU, China closing a bit more its doors, you know, uh, data sovereignty uh, becoming more and more important. So I wonder with that, with sort of the, 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 the whole concept of blockchain of actually it's the, in, in, in breaking up in, in relation to, you know, you can open up cloud instances wherever you want, but it's going to cost you. 
Yeah, it's it's your operational cost is going to go through the roof. Really. Yeah. So that will start us really looking at how we can disassociate the data from actually the platform offerings much more and accelerate towards that. So I wonder, based on that sort of train of thought, is technologies like blockchain, which have been around for a while, talking around them and becoming more prevalent, uh, you, you know, the type of services that actually the cloud providers start offering make it easier for you actually to break up those uh, those capabilities and uh, and actually being able to approach it. So I, I I think I think it's uh, it, looking at that, but also the level of advancement is. You know, the pace that we see, the level of advancement we've seen in the last 10 years. So, you know, 2035 is going to be a very different place. Yeah. Um, so, like, it's an interesting you mentioned a couple of things there. So, like, you, you all touched upon the idea that with the abundance that um, cloud gives us, like, we've got access to so much more compute. You know, we can look at utilization. Um, many of you, when we would preparing for this talked about governance right so we're going to start talking about governance a little bit now and execution strategy the other thing that many of you talked about was actually skills and capability um, and so when we talked about AWS everyone was like oh yeah I can get access to AWS talent uh, the market's full of it when you talked about GCP everyone was like oh okay that's a bit harder to get really good quality GCP uh, uh, people and I was chatting to a friend who is he runs transformation for a very very large retail and investment bank and he was saying that all of the major vendors they talk about cloud off like cloud talent and cloud capability but actually they're really struggling for people who truly understand how to architect these things well how to deal with the very complex situations of taking legacy systems bringing them on so um sarah can you talk a little bit about uh, governance and starting to think about how do you actually construct an execution strategy uh, uh once we've chosen our cloud we've we made our strategic choices how do you get around running it I know, I think that comes back is that points that you've touched on, which is about your talent pool and your readiness for your organization to change. I think that's one of the other things. It's great that you can do all of these things, but you've got an organization that's steeped in a degree of legacy way of operating. And unless you've actually got those talented people on board with you to bring the organization, you either, you know, rip and replace, which is not a great thing to do as an organization because you lose your organizational awareness. It's not a great cultural thing to do from an organization. Um, but then you do end up chasing down the talents. And, and as you say, I think there are a small number of unicorn people that really understand what they're doing with it and how to make it properly fly for an organization. And it's whether or not you're lucky enough to land you know, in the right place at the right time with the right talent to really make it work for your organisation. And, and I do think, to some degree, that's chance and availability, not necessarily something that you can go out and construct and force to happen. You know, um, so it, it is a it comes down to a big part of it. And it's also a big part in in the selection of it, because if you haven't got the talent or you're on the cutting edge of things, 
Um, and I suppose that depends on where you are as an organisation. And I know you want to go into um, into the execution piece, but I do just want to also reflect back on that piece about where we're going to be in the future. I think more organisations are going to need to be technology companies. I mean, if you look at the disruptors to, to new business for us, you know, the disruptors to our business were the concepts of the um, of the Uber Eats, the Deliveroo's, those concepts of changing up the supply chain. So more and more organisations are trying to get in on this game as to whether you work out whether you're going to be the platform provider and the person with the data and the accessibility to the supply and the demand or whether you're going to be a, a commodity in that supply and demand landscape and I think that coming back to that about the governance and the execution it's whether you can land the right talent at the right time with the right business you know, it's a real special um, reaction a chemical reaction of all the things at the right time to then drive your business forwards yeah i agree i agree alex actually um you you shared a story um on a, a bit of that about how you've helped con- companies actually build their talent pool mm-hmm. in cloud uh, capability and if, if you could just talk a little bit about the governance and that that capability building and getting getting a level of control mm-hmm. that would be great yeah we work with uh, when we're working with a big company and it uh, goes through the transformation digital transformation adopts the cloud and combines the cloud in a proper combination, it usually, yes, it comes down to whether our organization is ready to change. So it's organizational change management is then what are we going to change? What are we going to adopt? What is uh, to be state versus exist, uh, exist state versus to be state? What is the path? And then how we build the proper competencies. And it's usually a combination again of acquiring appropriate people and building a competency within existing workforce because this vehicle of developing these competencies is very important. And we were also working with uh, competency development models and frameworks, which will include proper hiring, like profiling and hiring people, acquiring proper people and uh, with proper profile, then educating people, then building a, a community, research and development opportunities for people so they, uh, as a part of that community, so they move that technology further, they're interested, they're active in this uh, technology and competency group. And it actually then paid out, uh, it usually takes six to eight months, but as soon as they have that vehicle, they're capable of building new competencies. There's a competency development roadmap, usually a yearly one, and uh, it slides. And we uh, as soon as we have that vehicle, then we are ready to adopt new technologies because they're rapidly changing very much. We were talk, discussing the port- portable workload. For example, we have App Engine that does everything. It just You just upload your application there and it, it does everything else. Like it's, it's magic, right? And uh, so, yeah, it, it's, we have to have people that interested in this technology that will go research, acquire that knowledge, share that knowledge, become a champions of that. So that also part of this competency development model and also leaders and champions uh, because we distinguish these two uh, assignments or roles because leaders, people who can take accountability for a certain group of competencies or performance and champions who the people who can take a, uh, and um, accomplish a certain initiatives and lead other people, become mentors, uh, acquire new technology, 
stuff like that. So it's 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 a very long conversation, <laughs> I feel. So yeah, uh, it usually comes down to people. I I totally agree with that. Also change management and also understanding why we're doing this, how we're going to do this. Like for example, there's a particular roadmap. I don't know if we go into the execution part, I feel with this, uh, because I can talk about that for an hour. <laughs> well, we only have nine minutes left. <laughs> right. and I do want to get a thought from everybody else and uh, uh, just okay. give space for any questions. But I do want to just make sure again that there will be a white paper follow-up. We can put yes. some details about that execution and kind of how do you run that in there so people can read at their leisure outside of, uh, outside of the conversation as well. If there is, a, if there is something you want to add, maybe yes. in 60 quite seconds, a few things. 90 seconds. Yes. <laughs> Very quickly. Uh, so there are quite a few important things to consider apart from that what we spoke about is that, for example, first of all, we have to pilot, then we have to migrate data prior to migrating the application, make sure that data is consistent and it lives in the cloud, and then we migrate the application and then it shows if it works or not. And things like that. And also that we have to have a governance team, a cloud team, proper set of cloud team, uh, like also a security team, a networking team, and they have different authority and they all understand how they collaborate. Like for example, we find out that usually scale the gel framework works best. So that sorts of things. And I also feel wanted to quickly comment on the, on the uh, uh, containers ROI. Uh, it just, it's, it's a great question. I get, I hear it very often and it's very easy and simple to explain to actually executives how it benefits our business is that it reduced the operational cost because we are less considering the infrastructure we're deploying on because it, our code and applications, they just never mind, they don't uh, need a particular infrastructure to be deployed on. First, second, we don't have to change the application each time we deploy it, adjust it to the infrastructure we deploy it on. And also this containers technology, it's layered so we can take one container, uh, repackage it to another container, then repackage to another container, redeploy it. So it's, it's flexible and it requires less effort. So it allows us more frequent deployments uh, with less cost. So it's, it's very simple. Uh, Excellent, that's great. Yeah. Um, so just last thoughts from each of you. Uh, we've been dealing with the questions as we've been going. I've been kind of weaving them into conversation rather than leaving a big Q&A. But uh, Russ, why don't you give us going 60 seconds, something else, like something that we've not covered that you would think our listeners really should know about. Um, just any last piece of wisdom. Well, I'll, I'll stick to the sustainability theme. Um, and this is has kind of been touched on, but I think um, cloud offers a fantastic opportunity for um, IT to make a a real difference to um, organizations' sustainability targets. And if you think about the application of um, technologies like IoT, um, you know, machine learning, uh, the, the sort of analytics sort of side of things, um, these are really good tools um, for um, helping uh, an organ a broader organization um, become more efficient, optimize what they have, lower the use of resources, etc. So um, I think I'm very positive. I mean, often there's a massive growth in IT, and with that comes more energy consumption, more materials in terms of you know uh, the actual div compute devices, that sort of thing. So we have to offset that 
um, with doing good in the world, essentially. And um, and IT represents, and particularly cloud-based technology, represent a fantastic opportunity to do that. So, yeah, get 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 connected with with uh, that with that world. <laughs> excellent. How about you, Arta? Anything? Any I think, yes, I think one thing that we haven't touched um, is to look into the edge computing and CDNs because the lines are blurring there as well where we run computing. So the first, for example, if you think about Amazon's CloudFront where you run your Lambda at Edge, but for example, um, Cloudflare, which now starts to offer worker loads and key value stores with data sovereignty in different places, for example, including Saudi Arabia, for example. So that's why I was looking into that is they, they offer suddenly compute just on the edge, very close to the user or as close as possible to the user instead of a classical idea of a region or availability zone, which changes completely as well and blurs the line of which cloud to use because very often we had choose one edge provider like CloudFront and we put the different clouds underneath. And now the lines are blurring as well and are you going multi-CDN or not? And why are you going with the cloud edge computing going forward? Okay, I, I mean, I think the topic will run and run as we, as we, as we get closer and closer to the customer for sure uh, and the user, and then we'll really have to start worrying about data silos um, uh, down the line as well. Uh, Mark, any any thoughts on it? Yeah, I think you know I'm looking the two factors from an execution perspective. One is the way to execute is, you know, if you haven't moved to the cloud or you're thinking to move to the cloud, it's looking at the approach to move to the cloud. So, you know, there are various approaches. Personally, we always went through the lift, shift and tweak, but that's going to cost you more in the beginning. So really, if you're thinking a bit about the future, think about re-architecting the platform, but that is still going to take you longer. So that's the balance. Yeah. So that's one point. Secondly, it's skills competence uh, of the team. You know, personally, I've built uh, uh, cloud teams now in, 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 in a few organizations. Arthur used to work with me uh, uh, in, in, in the previous two gigs. So uh, we had fun together in building platforms. Um, uh, but competence is really critical. I think it's, uh, and that's where I would say, you know, we, from, from an SHR perspective, we are in this sort of type of business. So looking at potential, looking at skills, you're going to have to reskill. You can't go just and hire all sorts of new people. You can, but you can also looking at the potential you have within your organization of people that actually could get those type of skills. We had, uh, uh, we actually ourselves had some really good success. The team that I had in the beginning knew practically nothing around the cloud and through sort of uh, uh, pairing and understanding and having the competence competence to, you know, pick up new technologies, that gave me the ability to say. So I would say, think about that structure, think about the execution, and then look at uh, look at uh, look at where you want to really go, you know. And uh, thank you, Sarah. Last last comment from a panelist. 
Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, I think it's about the fact that cloud is really tearing down those barriers to entry. And I think you reflected on it right at the beginning of this. It's really tearing down the barriers to entry for competitive landscape. And I think that what we need to do as technologists and people leading technology and transformation in organisations is really work out how you're going to be able to translate those ever-increasing capabilities from a cloud containerless, how you're going to translate that for your business. How are you going to give yourself a competitive advantage? How can you have a new entry? into a new market quickly try it out and um, get in and out and innovate as a business and i think that that's what the cloud landscape offers us all that ability to support our businesses doing that perfect well i've really enjoyed talking with you all getting to know you over the last few weeks as we've been talking about this topic um, your insights have been uh, great helpful for me um, in my next season as well um, i've really enjoyed it i look forward to the white paper that comes out of it and Phil, I'm going to hand it back to you and thank you for letting me host the first Technofresh Sessions uh, event. Well, thank you very much for doing it, Phil. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you to everyone for attending. We really, really appreciate your, your time. Um, what I would like you to do now is consider you or somebody in your network who wants to be part of the collective because events like this and groups like this will only grow and flourish um, with your interaction. So have a consideration also about the topics that you want us to cover in the coming 12 months because we plan on releasing these one about every six weeks. The recording of this session will be available, I hope, within a week. Um, my person who's doing that is probably going to kill me for that, because I'll probably say it'll take longer than that, but hopefully within a week. There will be the white paper to be produced as well. So we'll, for ongoing information, our, our aim at Technofresh, like I said, is to provide a good narrative around how technology is enabling and helping humankind. So thank you for everyone for attending, particularly thank you to the panelists, you know, thank you so much for giving your time and effort and energy, not only for today, but also what people don't know is the time you've given up preceding this to give us an insight into the angle you're coming from. And I really appreciate it. And um, I hope we can get you involved in future sessions as well. So thank you to everyone. It's been a great insight. And I look forward to our next session, which we're planning for the end of January. Watch this space for more information.